I'm happy to welcome Anagarika Charlie into this community and into the monastic training and also very happy that uh, there's so many of you here this evening to uh, bear witness to this a commitment to uh, training like this in this form and this manner is a uh, very inspiring thing in a, a world that is uh, so generally full of uh, commitment to distraction that uh, when somebody decides to renounce uh, most of the distractions and get a little more focused on the inner work, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's an inspiring thing. So, so welcome, Charlie. I'm sure all of you uh, join me in wishing Charlie well on this journey, the next few steps into the unknown uh, spiritual journey of course uh, has some guidelines there are maps that have been offered us by uh, by the Buddha and the other great realized beings who have followed the Buddha's teachings but translating these maps into walking the journey is a different matter because it offers us a vision of wonderful rewards but, of course, we would all know that uh, there's also many uh, apparent, at least, obstructions on this journey. And, and we don't know where and when we're going to meet these obstructions and how to meet them. It's a mysterious journey. And Last week, uh, I spoke about uh, how we might identify some of these obstructions and for the sake of the contemplation, I differentiated between the uh, perhaps more subtle, what we could call spiritual hindrances on the path, uh, and also those less subtle, what I refer to as emotional obstructions, and suggested that it's helpful to have this uh, differentiation. If we don't recognize that there are these sometimes rather coarse, intensely challenging uh, emotional upheavals that we need to deal with and there are much more subtle obstructions. And if we don't have this uh, delineation, we can sometimes make the mistake of using the wrong uh, approach. Yeah, yeah. If you want to cut down a tree and you choose to use a Swiss army knife, you could be wasting a lot of time and uh, effort. Or if you're removing a, a, a splinter from your finger, likewise, you, you could probably use a Swiss army knife, but 
you know, it could cause some damage in the process. Uh, it's much more refined equipment uh, is really called for. And similarly, in the encounters that we, all of us, in, make with obstructions on the journey, it's wise to educate ourselves, to prepare ourselves with an understanding of the you know, the different approaches. And uh, if we don't do this, well, then, as I say, we could we could uh, fall for some conditioned assumptions about how to approach these difficulties and and cause ourselves more damage and waste a lot of time and a lot of energy. Uh, mm-hmm. Assumption, for instance, that that uh, that somehow we can be operating under the assumption that somehow somebody's looking after us. Mm-hmm. Some external spiritual authority or deity is out there taking care of things or or some uninspected assumption from from childhood that somehow mummy and daddy are going to look after us or you know, with our health, we have this wonderful national health in this country that if we're not conscious of it, we could you know, not be taking care of our diet and our exercise routine and just somehow assume that there's something out there, somebody out there that's going to take care of us. You know, that's a, a conditioned assumption that we can also bring it to the spiritual life. You know. In the monastic community, it's sometimes the case that you know, people just assume, well, you know, I'm part of this um, wonderful community of disciples of Ajahn Chah, and if I just keep my robes on, that's going to be good enough. We don't really, really dare to lean into the grindstone and sharpen the sword of wisdom, which is what's called for. We don't dare to take the risks that are called for when it comes to letting go of our initial good feelings uh, and deepen in our practice, well, then we don't get very far. So the assumption that there's somebody looking after us is is something that we would be wise to look into. Or the assumption of entitlement, which, again, the degree of affluence that probably all of us, or certainly most of us, have grown up with, we... If we're not careful, we can somehow just be assuming all sorts of things like rights of access to the teachings and end up taking it for granted, which is unfortunate. You know, getting kind of uh, casual in our relationship to the teachings and forget that actually there's not that many people on this planet who have the luxury to you know, have grown up with good parents, with good education, with good health, with good intelligence, with good Dhamma teachings that invite inquiry, that, that don't demand um, belief. And, and this is a, a rare good fortune that, that we all have. And so the sense of entitlement or take it for granted is similarly a, uh, an assumption that we'd be wise to spend time looking into if we have it. And, Tonight being the first Sunday of the month, of course, uh, many of you would know it's the time to consider the teaching by Ajahn Chah on our calendar page for this month where Ajahn Chah is talking about another conditioned assumption that somehow the quicker the better. 
the sooner the better attitude there. And the teaching there is uh, don't be too concerned about results or rapid progress in practice. A child first learns to crawl, then learns to walk and then run until fully mature, fully grown up. We might hear that or read that and think, oh, that's good, that's good. Yeah, I get that, I understand that. That's good to have that pointed out because I could be approaching practice with this unrealistic expectation that I should be, I should be progressing much faster than I am. And that's true. But we, we, you know, we can be operating under that assumption and, and then we can be judging ourselves because we're not making better progress. You know, maybe we still overeat at the meal and maybe in our meditation we're still dreaming and fantasizing about you know, that unpleasant conversation that I had 30 years ago or you know, something that keeps cropping up and we allow ourselves to be distracted by it and, and we then get humiliated when we catch ourselves. Why aren't I over these obstructions and difficulties? And we can get really hard on ourselves. And But that's like you know, getting hard on those, those young oak trees down by the lake. I was down the lake this morning with a friend who was visiting and he hadn't been here for about three years and he comes from Malaysia and he was commenting that the trees weren't much bigger than when he was here last time and well it's all right if you're from Malaysia you can you know have such expectations but this is Northumberland and you know those oak trees are not failing because they're not growing quick you know it's in the nature of oak trees to take time to grow uh, if we're according with the nature, if we're in tune with the nature, in other words, if we're talking about the inner inquiry, if we're in tune with the reality of our hearts, then we appreciate that virtue takes time. Yeah, the virtue of, of patient endurance. You know, you just We keep getting tri- tripped up. We keep getting tripped up. And, and we tend to, or speaking personally, I know from in my practice I, over the years I can, I, can, I can see the benefit of patient endurance and then I say, well, I'm going to develop patient endurance. But in the background there, there's a kind of assumption that you know, within one or two months or <laughs> maybe years, I might have cracked it. But yeah, some of these things take a very long time to cultivate. And so, again, the... Uh, to really understand what these teachings are talking about, to understand in a transformative way, to understand in the way like the image Judge and Char is giving there, that a child first learns to crawl, then walk, then run, before a child has grown up. And those of you that are parents know that that's, you know, that can take a very long time. The process of a child growing up can be a really big deal. In fact, it can take you most of your life. Now, some computer-generated graphic might be able to conjure up some magical impression of a a child turning into an adult very quickly, but that's that's an hallucination. That's that's a, that's a, a, a fantasy. That's not a real child. The abstract, on the abstract level, we can imagine all sorts of things, you know, and we do. You know. 
with, with imagining we should have overcome all of our problems by now, imagining we should have much better concentration, imagining we should have much better insight than we do now. We can imagine all these things, and then we make the mistake of assuming these, these uninspected assumptions again, we make the mistake of assuming that somehow these ideas we have about ourselves and our practice are actuality. Now those approximations, the level of apparent reality, is that's really important. Yeah, that's how we get started. You know, we read about the teachings, the study level of practice, the study level of training is called pariyati dhamma. You know, learning about things, and that inspires a vision, an image, that we have these ideals that give us energy. And we can imagine, extrapolate, how if we embark on this path that we can actually arrive at real realisation, uh, penetrate to real recognition of reality, as others have done before us. So that definitely has its place. But... The assumption that that ideal, the assumption that that image, the assumption that that aspiration is the same thing as that which we aspire towards or imagine, that we need to really look into. Yeah. Now, I'm harping on about this a bit because uh, I'm pretty sure all of us make this mistake. This is, uh, we can, because we imagine something to be true, doesn't mean to say it's true, but the kind of education that we have does condition us to make that assumption. Yeah. It's no different from imagining breakfast. Yeah. Breakfast, I'm very keen on breakfast. But imagining breakfast is not that nourishing. In fact, quite the opposite. You start imagining breakfast and you know, han and power porridge and you can be salivating and it's 8 o'clock at night and you know, God, another 11 hours yet before, you know. Imagining breakfast is not the same thing as eating breakfast. Hanagarika yeah. Andrew's got to prepare it all the night before and get the right proportions and soak the grains and seeds overnight and then get up at whatever hour it is in the morning that he gets up and, and then put it in the oven at the right temperature for a whole hour so that it's gently, really thoroughly cooked having drained off the water from the night before and added just the right amount of sea salt and if he forgets to add it then nobody likes him that day and there are consequences and and then to add just the right amount of tahini, not too much and, and then to serve it hot and not burnt because that's again another cause for a lot of disappointment in the community and that's a, that's, that takes a lot of effort and that's very different. That's very different from sitting there thinking about it. Yeah. But we do make that mistake, and that's a mistake that we really can't afford to make. You know, just because we can hear the teachings you know, about don't be too concerned about results or quick progress, just because we hear that and we, we sort of get it, let's not assume that we really get it and then forget about it and move on to something else. You know, what's called for is really slowing down, really slowing down and Repeat that. Yeah. Now, I put a lot of work into preparing these verses every year for the calendar and I really hope that people are going to contemplate them. But I suspect most people read them once and that's it. 
Now, sometimes people might go back and read them again, but what I really would like is if people read them every day for like 30-something days. Uh, Ajahn Chah dedicated his life to sharing the benefit of the effort he made in practice to help us develop understanding. The Buddha, from the time of his awakening, shared the rest of his adult life to sharing his understanding for, so we could realize the benefit of practice. The benefit of practice. So this is not just learning about. This is moving on from the initial good feeling that, yes, comes from the pariyati level of practice, you know, the study level of training, and daring to let go of that and move into the Patipati level of training. Pariyati practice is like when you're learning to ride a bicycle and you know there's somebody behind you holding on to the carrier. You remember? You know, you know you're not really riding a bicycle yet. You want to. You're sort of riding the bicycle. You're making some progress. But you know you're not really riding the bicycle yet. To actually ride the bicycle without anybody holding on to the carrier behind you, you've got to risk falling off. You've got to say, let go now. You know, remember... When my older brother was holding the car running behind me, he'd say, let go, and then you know, you wobble and you fall off. And you get hurt, but you really want to learn to ride the bicycle. You don't want to always have to have your bigger brother running behind you. You want to be able to ride the bicycle on your own. And, and if we're really interested in the progress and the spiritual path, we need to be willing to dare to get hurt, to dare to feel our suffering, without just bolstering ourselves up with a conceptual understanding. Mm. So the difference between pariyati level of training and patipati, the difference between the level of learning about dhamma and actually engaging the practice, the language is different and the teachers speak differently. You listen to the teachings from somebody who's talking at the level of pariyati or study, it's like an instruction session, instructing us into what is involved. And that's, as we said, we all agree, definitely got its place. But you listen to a teacher who's committed to practice and wants to share the benefit of their life, it's not so much instruction as induction which is a very different process. And the teacher sharing the benefit of their life and talking from a place of practice sometimes might even sound like they're contradicting some of the instruction that we've received. It's like that. And that's why it's important that we understand it's a different language, it's a different stage of training. If we don't understand that, well, then sometimes we can get confused and sometimes it does happen. That and You might have heard that some of our teachers in the forest tradition, the practice tradition in Thailand, have been on the receiving end of some criticism and complaints from some very august, uh, highly respected scholars because some of the teachings are apparently inconsistent. You know, they don't always fit with what the scriptures say. Yeah. Well, they're not supposed to. You're not supposed to be treating you know, a Dhamma talk in the same way as you would be attending to some theoretical discourse on the path. Yeah. Once we dare to 
open up to the suffering of life without the protection of an initial level of conceptual understanding, daring to trust in our aspiration, daring to engage faith rather than, than the holding back and the protecting ourselves against our suffering. Once we start to do that, then it's a very different path that we're walking. So we need to prepare ourselves for that. The uncertainty increases. Now, when we first come across the theory of practice, uh, Hariati level of training, uh, encountering the confidence that comes with a a clear presentation of the way, it can be so good. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a kind of, yes, this is it. This is, yes, you keep reading all this stuff and you want to read more and listen to more. And then you, But once you start practicing, you start letting go of some of the ideas that we were holding on to, some of the habits that we've been cultivating, you know, like the habit to always move when we want to. And sitting meditation, actually, sometimes you're feeling uncomfortable and the teacher says, well, don't move. Just wait there and feel the wanting to move. Well, that's different. <laughs> That's completely different. So, yeah, I want to let it let go of my uh, ignorant relationship to desire, but the idea of having to stop moving when I want to move or stop following my fantasies when I, I want to follow them, you know, sometimes the profound ideas that might come up in meditation are, are just so attractive. And the teacher says, you've got to stop following those fantasies, you know, come back to the breath, come back to your sitting posture, come back to the sound of silence. Well, how boring is that? Yeah. And then you encounter, I don't want to do this. So, well, I thought I wanted to meditate. Well, now I really don't want to meditate. I just want to get up and go and eat some ice cream and have a cup of coffee. Yeah. I really don't want to get out of bed in the morning and meditate. I don't want to keep precepts. Yeah. I don't want to go on retreat anymore. It was kind of okay in the beginning when I was feeling inspired. And then, actually, now everything within me really doesn't want to do it. That's a different game. So it's good if we're prepared for that. Yeah, when the game changes, we're ready for it. We don't make we don't assume that we're failing just because the mood changes. Inspiration maybe changes to disillusionment, disappointment with ourselves, with the tradition, with the teacher. So preparing ourselves by quietly, in our own way, in our own time, questioning the conditioned assumptions that we have, not because I said so or because we think we should, but by way of experiment, checking to see that we're not just following our conditioning. And then being ready to change tack when that's what's called for. To learn to listen in a new way. Yeah. Like when we're listening at the level of being instructed, it's quite normal that in our minds we're just we're trying to absorb everything. We're trying to remember everything. Well, at least that was my experience. And the teacher said this, the teacher said that. And what did he mean by that? And I think, 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 trying to recall it. And it's like somehow if I can't remember it, I'm going to lose it. Yeah. And the mind is full 
But actually, that's not a really very skillful way of listening to a Dhamma talk. But it's understandable in the beginning. Really, we've got to move on from that and actually trust that there's something deeper. Trust in listening silently. Let go of the arguing. Let go of the agreeing and disagreeing. It doesn't matter whether we agree or disagree with the teacher. What matters is the mind quiet, is the heart still. So to be open, to be receptive, rather than always going out and arguing and encountering and contradicting or agreeing, taking sides for and against. From a practice perspective, if we're part of the practice tradition and not just part of the study tradition, we need to let go of that always arguing, always taking sides for and against and simply be open and receive. And when we can start to be able to do that, then we hear in a different way. You can read, for instance, in a book where the Buddha said, strive on with diligence. So, well, that's inspiring, strive on with diligence. But when you hear a teacher who has actually been striving with diligence, has actually arrived at some realization, when we're listening with a quiet mind, a peaceful heart, maybe we get a much more profound message. Now, we can be reading it in the book, Strive On With Diligence, and that could be feeding into our all sorts of deluded egoic excesses. You know, and we kind of force ourselves into contorted positions that we're not really ready for and, and willfully strive on with what we think is diligence. Yeah. But when we hear it from a teacher who knows what they're talking about, we hear their voice and it's a quiet mind, a peaceful heart that hears it. Yeah, we can hear a lot more. Maybe we hear their humility that they've acquired on their journey. Their patience that through all the burning that they went through or their compassion from encountering suffering. The difference between reading the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths and conceptually understanding it and the experience of feeling suffering with the sensitivity that sees how we're doing it, we're doing the suffering, is not just a conceptual understanding, profoundly different. Profoundly different. And and if you if you don't get this, then I would recommend, for instance, that you you watch that wonderful movie called Shadowlands. I don't know if any of you have seen Shadowlands, which is starring Anthony Hopkins as C. S. Lewis. I think it was was it directed by Attenborough, I think. It's been around for a long time now, this movie. And C. S. Lewis, who you'd be familiar with, I'm sure, he was well known for these very eloquent discourses that he would deliver on. They have large audiences who would come and be inspired. But then, you know, talking about suffering, when he's standing up there and behind the lectern and feeling safe and, and intelligent and Oxford Don, you know, commanding great respect in his audience. But then what happened when he, you know, when he fell in love with this extroverted American poet? Uh, and then... Uh, having fallen in love with her, she promptly died on him and his heart was broken. Then he knew what suffering was Uh, and then he was able to speak from a very different place. Uh, Well, 
I think that fits with what we're talking about, the difference between understanding on the theoretical level and the understanding that transforms our experience. The growing up process is very different from the idea of growing up. If we have the opportunity to listen to practice, to teachers who've been practicing and to listen, not just for the information, but also to listen from the heart and to hear what I, I like to refer to as the, the nutriments of the path. You know, faith, humility, patience, compassion. You know, these, these qualities that we're not necessarily automatically going to be introduced to when we read in a book, Strive On With Diligence. So being prepared for changing as we go along in the path and as we're looking for results in practice. At one stage, looking for results may be one thing, and at another stage of our training, looking for results may mean something else altogether. And if we're agile enough to change as we go along, then we're going to be developing the skills that are required yeah. We need a whole different set of skills. And again, as I started off by saying, then last week was talking about the different skills that are needed for engaging the various obstructions that we meet on the path. Yeah. If we haven't prepared ourselves with these skills, yeah, then we can be found lacking. Yeah. Talking about the a minute ago about the four nutriments is also I like to think about the the four primary skills that are needed on the path that, I mean, obviously you can hear the teachings and read about the teachings and practice and, and different aspects of the training pop up and become dominant. And certainly for me, the four aspects that are really, really important in terms of the skills that we need to meet the various obstructions on this journey, sati, samadhi, sense restraint and wise reflection. If we don't have those skills well prepared, well refined, uh, in a balanced way, yeah, we can maybe we can again make things worse for ourselves. Uh, uh, so maybe we've got some of them developed. Maybe we've done a course in mindfulness, and and so we think that we're properly equipped for the journey. Yeah, but we don't have sense restraint or we don't have samadhi or we don't have wise reflection or maybe we have what we consider as, as a really uh, skilled uh, capacity for reflecting wisely but we don't have sense restraint. Yeah. We don't know how to say no. Uh, training ourselves in what in Pali is called sangmara indriya which it means to be able to feel the impulse of the sense object contacting the sense organ, you know, the sight contacting the eye, and then there's an impression. Yeah. How do we receive that? Yeah. Given a lot of our affluent backgrounds and experiences and conditioning and the assumption of entitlement, we can just say, well, if I like it, I'll take it. If I don't like it, I'll get rid of it. Yeah, well, that's the opposite of sense restraint. Now, we're not talking about repressing you know, sometimes 
and talk about sense restraint and people can get confused and think we're talking about repressing impulses. There's indulging and there's repressing. This is like the Buddha's very first discourse, the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the law. There's the extremes of indulging in pleasure and then denying pleasure or indulging in self-mortification. But then there's the middle way, which is the knowing the impulse to indulge, knowing the impulse to deny. So knowing the impulse is very different from blindly reacting. Animals blindly react. You put down some food for this dog and it starts to eat it, but then you put some food for the other dog, this dog will go and eat it. It doesn't stop to reflect that it's going to have a a fight as a result. That's not very clever. (laughs) I mean, dogs can be very nice, and some of them are quite clever, but often they're not clever enough to behave in ways that (laughs) free them from suffering. So the Buddha obviously wanted us to use our wise reflection, and to do that we need to train in sense restraint, so as we're able to inhibit the reaction. Those of you that might have trained in Alexander technique will be very familiar with this. Some of the automatic contractions that we cultivate in the various early stages of life, or perhaps not so early, but we go into these unhelpful habits of contracting as far as the Alexander technicians are concerned, particularly around the neck. The whole organism suffers as a result. And we need to learn to inhibit that contraction so that the organism can rebalance. We find a similar pattern happens in all sorts of physical disciplines. Hmm. Now, if we haven't trained ourselves properly, for instance, with patience, with humility, with modesty, if we haven't really practiced the teachings, we're still operating on the basis of a conceptual understanding, then we we, we can just try and bypass all this stuff. We just... Busy trying to do our wise reflection and thinking, thinking, thinking about the teachings and trying to get the letting go, but it doesn't happen. All of these factors, all of these nutriments, all of these skills contribute to a realigning ourselves with that which our heart deeply longs for. That's the ability to let go of our habits of clinging. And the preparation does sometimes take a tremendous amount of time. I was thinking earlier today about how much I hurt myself some years back when I I decided to get back into yoga again. This is not good enough. I used to do yoga very regularly and and then I've I've gotten really heedless. I need to get back into yoga again and so... Got all enthusiastic. I probably, I think, I had a cup of coffee and you know got limbered up and so do this exercise, that exercise. You know, a little sideways bending. Thing. Oh, I'm going to do the plow. I love the plow. So I get down there on the floor and say, like, go back into the plow. Oh, that feels good. That stretch really feels good. I go a bit further, <laughs> a bit further. And I really hurt myself. I mean, really. I mean, fortunately, it didn't totally damage my neck, but I really hurt myself. You know? Yeah. The assumption that we're, we should be able to go faster or do better than we can, you know, we can hurt ourselves. You know, so from, yes, from the level of studying about things, about Dhamma, we can 
get all inspired and energetic and encouraged, uh, but we can also make very big mistakes. Uh, we need to move on in a gradual way, just as a child grows up gradually, we need to move on gradually into the pariyati level of training, you know, the practice level of training, and associate with those that know much more than we do. Hmm. To learn to listen in a new way, to learn to listen in a quiet way. Hmm. Listen to others, listen to ourselves. Hmm. And, and the investigation changes its characteristic. Yeah. Yeah. The investigation is not, is not so much a noise in our head, but a feeling in our hearts. Yeah. Like this point that Ajahn Chah is making, but don't be overly concerned about results. You say, well, you start to contemplate that in a feeling way. and you say, Well, it's kind of natural to look for results, isn't it? It's kind of natural. So am I misunderstanding what Ajahn Chah is talking about? So we stay with it, feel the inquiry. We're not dismissing our ability to, to imagine intellectually what he's talking about, but it's a, more of, it's a quieter approach. And maybe we start to see the difference between looking for results in a way that is demanding and looking for results in a way there's a natural inclination. If we haven't stopped to feel that, if we're just coming from our head, yeah, we're not getting all the information we need. And again, we can be making our situation much worse. So our relationship to the training, we need to be prepared to be agile, to be ready to slow down, to not be overly enthusiastic, and to be ready to move out of that initial level of security that we felt when we had a conceptual understanding of the path into a place that doesn't feel so secure, but is a settling, a settling into the heart. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm -hmm. Sayanda Majata Sadhakaranda Dhamma Sayanda Sadhu